Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. We are here in Washington, D.C., live to tape a series of podcast episodes just blocks from the Capitol Dome. All this thanks to our gracious hosts here at Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, and for this episode as well, the American Constitutional Constitution Society, the leading progressive organization and network with over 200 lawyer and student chapters nationwide. All this week, we're talking about what happens after Mueller. What are the challenges and prospects for our democratic institutions? Today, we're focused on what happens the day of Robert Mueller's testimony to Congress. Prior to the announcement of Mueller's testimony, the House's effort to bring the report to life seemed to be getting nowhere and near checkmated. Thirteen weeks had passed, and the House hadn't succeeded in having a single fact witness testify publicly, stymied repeatedly by the administration's reflexive and ultra-aggressive policy of interposing dubious defenses that left Congress having to choose between caving and litigating, the latter involving significant time. But Mueller is a law-abider, and he got a lawful subpoena and agreed to testify, notwithstanding clearly preferring not to. So the stakes for the House are enormous. They must use the opportunity, if they can, to make the American people understand the gravity of the offenses and misconduct laid out in the report, as pretty much anyone of the 0.01% who's actually read the 448-page report does. But that's a complicated undertaking with expected strident opposition from the committee Republicans and the overall need to treat Mueller respectfully. So how should they approach it in broad strokes? We have a remarkable panel to address these questions of tactics and strategy, people with broad experience within the federal government who also know very well the ways of Congress, the Department of Justice, and the FBI, who know the politics and the substance, who know Bob Mueller, and who know the key players on the House side. They are... Ron Klain, Executive Vice President and General Counsel at Revolution LLC. Ron is the former Chief of Staff to Vice President Joe Biden, as well as Vice President Al Gore and Attorney General Janet Reno. And I'm leaving out a long list of accomplishments in a distinguished career in public service and the private sector. He's also the former Chief Counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Ron, welcome to Talking Feds. Thanks, Harry. Next. Tim Lynch joins us. Tim is a principal at the Rabin Group, specializing in government affairs. He's the former deputy general counsel to the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, but also a former assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York. Tim, welcome. Glad to be here. Next, Matthew Miller, a partner at Novo, former director of the Office of Public Affairs at the Department of Justice the former communications director for the House Democratic Committee, and I think it's fair to say a charter member of the Talking Feds podcast, but it's especially good to have him here today. Matt, thanks for coming. Great to be here in person. Finally, we're honored, uh, truly honored, to have Andrew McCabe join us on Talking Feds for the first time. He's the former deputy director of the FBI, the former acting director of the FBI, as well now as the author of The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump, which I think should be and will be must-reading, not just now, but in the future as we try to dissect everything that has happened in these tumultuous few years. Welcome, Andy. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so quite enough for me. Let's dive um, in. Uh, So many things to think about in, in, in... putting ourselves in Congress's position. Let me start by challenging my own premise. Have I sort of overstated the stakes here 
Does does the house have to swing for the fences, or will a clean single uh, suffice? How much pressure is on them now? Let me ask you, Ron, to start with that, and then anyone else weigh in. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a, a Democratic Mueller critic, and I think that uh, the Democrats on the Hill made a mistake in putting much, so much uh, at stake on the Mueller report and uh, postponing any investigations until the report came out. And I think if they're expecting some dramatic event uh, when he testifies, they're going to be sorely disappointed. I think the entire Mueller report is constructed to minimize the significance of Trump's wrongdoing. Uh, I think it misses the ball badly on critical issues of campaign finance law. And I think that if they think they're going to get some explosive statements out of Mueller, they're not going to get it. Look, I do think they can... Uh, shape and focus their questioning to uh, emphasize certain things. They will have the cameras there. They can uh, try to reinforce the point that Mueller didn't um, exonerate the president, as the president and his attorney general have claimed. But um, I, I do think there is a lot of buildup for what may be a very disappointing show uh, when Mueller testifies. Yeah, you know, I'll add to that a little, and I wonder what Tim thinks about it as a former AUSA, because you have these odd lacuna I, for you know for lack of a better well, there must be a better word but to, for in, in the report where even to try to explain it takes about a 5 minute wind up because you have Mueller just tiptoeing around conclusions that leave Congress without any ability to make a kind of clean sentence of course he found obstruction for example so he was genteel in a lot of spots that besides staying his hand just left it very difficult even to try to uh, explain. What's your, Tim, what do you think about the report itself, even though that's that's a, a kind of departure from what happened? Well, it's not. It's actually it'll be the number one exhibit come Wednesday. Yeah. Well, so let me just, your, your first, do I think they need to swing for the fences? Yeah. No. When I used to try cases, if you try to swing for the fences, oftentimes it falls flat. What they need to do is use this as an opportunity as a reset button. You know, Barr was successful in his misinformation campaign um, around the report. And so this is an opportunity, since most Americans haven't read the report, to educate the public about the most serious aspects of the report. Um, and it, you know, for something like this, a report this complex, they've got to pick and choose and focus on, you know, for example, if on House Judiciary, focus on the most serious aspects of wrongdoing on obstruction of justice. And you've got to use the report as a guide in your approach with Mueller, um, particularly given that he's already said he wants to try to stay within that. You want to use and highlight the most serious aspects in obstruction whether it's, you know, instances that the president tried to fire the special counsel. I think that's going to be key. They've got to pick and choose and hone in on that because you've only got a short amount of time, particularly with five minutes. Well, that might be true, not just Wednesday, but in general. I mean, let me challenge or at least ask Matt to react to your premise. I think there's some tension, maybe even a flat out uh, difference of opinion with Ron, because that's right. You swing for the fences, you often flail, but not when you're down three runs and there's a there's an you know we're in the ninth inning. So is is reset politically and and I would you know maybe even just uh, rationally feasible now, Matt. Wait, they have a pretty good day. So what? Uh, do they? Is there so much that has to be accomplished uh, Wednesday to change the dynamic that a, that a mere reset can't do the job? I think the question is, if you're House Democrats, what do you want to come out of this hearing? Um, there was a time when I thought, we thought, maybe the whole country thought, certainly the president thought that this investigation might be an existential threat to his presidency. I, I think those days are over. I think that's done. This, that he's not going to yep. be removed from office over that. When he very first heard um, about it, he said, I'm, I'm done. That, I, yeah, I, that's I think right. he might have sworn about that's it, but we're on what he said. radio. Right. <laughs> we um, I, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about what, you know, what I see as some of the inflection points in the past and how all the inflection points have gone the president's way. Mueller right. not making a call on obstruction. Uh, Barr whitewashing things the way he did and giving Trump a, a, a four-week head start. This is another inflection point. It's one that might go against him, 
But I think it's too much to think that 16 weeks after the report was turned into DOJ, 12 weeks after it, it was um, uh, released to the public, that, that you're going to see an inflection point so dramatic that it's going to completely reverse things and lead to another existential threat that removes the president from office. And so what I think the, the, the Democrats ought to do is just try to, to draw out for the American public what some of the report's findings are and try to show that the report does show he committed a crime. And I think they're going to have to be very creative in the way they do that because Mueller is not. You got a tough in. witness here, don't you? You got a tough ways. witness. Yeah. He's been he's been before Congress many times. He's been prepped by people like like me and Ron many times. You know, don't 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 go beyond the four corners of the report. Don't you know take hypotheticals. Don't speculate. And I think they're going to have to be creative and do things like like ask general questions that then get to specifics. So, for example, you start by saying. Um, is it a crime for uh, t- to direct a witness to create a false document that contradicts his truthful testimony? The answer is yes. Has the department? The answer pro- is I don't want to speculate hypothetically. Well, I, 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 has the department <laughs> prosecuted people for okay. that in the past? The answer to that See? question is yes. Yeah, nice pivot did the, there. Did the president direct someone to create a false document yeah. contradicting his testimony? The answer to that is yes. And so you draw him into to concluding it without expecting him to actually come out and say what we would hope are the magic words. Right. So, well, let me just say, because yeah. uh, Andy no, can add the extra vantage point of knowing the, the the director very well or having seen him testify, and not to mention having been on the hot seat probably more times than you can count. So, so given the kind of, and what, when I said he was a tough witness, it's not just that he'll be well prepared, but it's a real dilemma, you know, whether you have to wear kid gloves or not, given, given who he is. What do you think would count in, as a victory, all things considered, for the judiciary major- majority at this point? You know, I agree with Matt. I think that the the committee should roll into this hearing with the purpose of communicating the substance of the report in the broadest and most accessible way to the American public as they can. Forget about articles of impeachment. Forget about what the vote count will be in the Senate. The idea here is to get the information in that report, which was presented in a legalistic and dense way, communicated in a very clear and simple way. I think the way you do that is by setting the ground rules, explaining for people, and having Mueller answer these questions in a leading fashion, that the way prosecutors prove cases, every crime comes down, has specific elements. And the way prosecutors prove cases is they show, they present evidence, that supports each one of those elements. Mueller left you the roadmap. There are 10 categories of obstructive activity detailed in that report. On eight of those categories, he concludes that there is significant evidence to prove every element of that crime of obstruction. And that, I'd say, is an understatement. You you actually read into those paragraphs. He doesn't conclude that. He concludes there's obstructive uh, Absolutely. Con- conduct, Absolutely. Yeah. He does. And so yeah. that's the that's ha- where I would walk Mueller. He is going to be a reluctant witness on his best and most cooperative days. The director is not a strong witness because he's dramatic or he's verbose or he lays out a narrative in the way that other witnesses do. He's a strong witness because he knows his facts. He's been impeccably prepared and he'll answer questions directly. So knowing that I would go in as Matt kind of uh, uh, gave us an example just a minute ago with very specific leading questions, forcing him to acknowledge that the elements of this crime have been essentially proven in the report in a number of different ways. Ron, you had a point. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess I get that strategy. I probably have a different strategy, which is I think where the Democrats are is they need to think about not what happens on July 17th, but what happens on July 18th. Right. So what happens next? And I think even if they have a good day with Mueller and they coax them to say some things, whatever. Their biggest vulnerability is it's just over at sunset. So I think their objective in the hearing has to be to say, hey, there's more things to investigate. They need to leave that with more doors open than closed. And I think that's more about testing Mueller on what's not in the report. Not that he's going to comment on it, but what are the areas of investigation Mueller didn't complete? What are the things he looked at but didn't run to ground? I mean, overall, I think my biggest Uh, One of my biggest critiques of the report is he set the legal standard that's just the wrong legal standard under federal election law. So that he could not establish that there was coordination. Uh, That's just not the standard under federal election law. Um, You don't need an explicit or implicit agreement 
uh, to have coordination, uh, unlawful coordination of federal election law. I think there are a lot of areas where Mueller didn't run the thing to ground on the work with the WikiLeaks and what did Donald Trump Jr. do with the folks at WikiLeaks and Roger Stone. And I think, so the bottom line is, I think figuring out, I, I think this discussion of what's in the report is important, but what's more important is opening the doors to what's not in the report that Congress then on July 18th can say, hey, this is why we need to do more we hearings. To do. This is yeah. why we need to look into more things. I just want to say, I mean, like just in these eight minutes, we have established a very big fault line in this panel. You're now in Congress and it's, are we going to go for the four corners because they'll go for it? Or are we going to go broader because we have to establish that we have work to do? That is one fundamental question. And, that, and leaving aside who's making it, the five-minute uh, structure, yeah. what's going to be happening with the Republicans. Let me try to turn it around. Um, okay, I think we've identified, everyone seems to be thinking nothing's going to clear the fences tomorrow, and there's some discussion, uh, on, excuse me, on Wednesday, uh, and there's some discussion about what'll be good enough to go on. What, Matt, would be like a, a clear loss? Would be like, game over, see you next <laughs> season, really there's just no more air in the tires to keep mixing metaphors for, and we're, and, and, you know, Trump can say we're done. Uh, I mean, honestly, a clear loss would be a hearing that's looked like a lot of the hearings this committee has held previously, where you see a lot of bickering between the members. The yeah. Republicans are successful. You know, that you have a two-hour cap on this hearing. The Republicans are successful in interrupting and dragging things out. So in the two hours, you don't get that, that many questions asked. And I, I think that this is, you know, I have a lot of friends on that committee, as probably a lot of us do, a lot of poor questioning from the members. And so you leave with the, the takeaway from the American people being this is a food fight uh, on the Hill, a partisan food fight that didn't establish anything, both because there's a lot of bickering, which you can't help, but because there's a lot of poor questioning, which you can't help and or which you can help. But I'm afraid they won't. We, we, and, we, they won't. and Andy Mueller's composure is legendary. But how's it going to be for him to be sitting in the chair and people actually, there are going to be people on the committee who will as much as call him a criminal, a cheat, et cetera. Do you see him get being completely unflappable? Do you see him even trying to respond and be polite or tuning them out? You know, I, I see uh, Director Mueller handling that sort of stuff particularly well. It's yeah. just not, those are not balls that he's going to swing at. He's <laughs> so straight ahead in his in his responses. He'll call a spade a spade, but he's not going to get into an argument with, um, with the questioner. I think Matt's point is well taken that um, the Democrats have to set themselves apart as actually pursuing a substantive goal in this hearing rather than just trading barbs. If each one of these five minute questioning on the on the majority side comes down to, you know, individual members uh, trying to show how outraged they are at the president and um, then we get nowhere. We end up with that swing and a mess if they can return to an actual substantive pursuit. Um, with each round of questioning, which is hard to do when it's distributed across that wide It uh, really is hard, right? And, and, yeah, so like, yeah, and let and me I, ask you, I mean, because you've, you've got both the Hill experience and the, and the questioning, the AUSA experience. Given this limitation, you know, they're not going to have skilled questioners actually offering it. What about if you could give advice, and you probably, maybe you are, to, in terms of crafting Actual questions. Some, I think it was um, uh, Andy who talked about leading questions. Is that the way to go? How would you actually, you know, brainstorm like pen to paper what question one looks like, two, three, and four? So you really have to, particularly for the members who are questioning Mueller, you really need to, in my Which is view. Does everyone know? Is there some? Are they? So there's going to oh. be some closed questioning, um, closed door session after. Right. Oh, I see what you mean. Will, yeah. Okay. Um, you really need to have the members use the report as a foundation, and you really have to focus them on you know the key parts. You know whether it's obstruction. So for example, you know Mr. Mueller, you know you you found you know and I quote substantial evidence that yeah. the president tried to fire. Um, you on this day. That's perfect. That right? Let me stop Tell you us. right now. Are okay. you then just going to do a leading question, or are you going to, to try to pin him to say exactly what he's talking about at the risk of his responding? Uh, well, Member Lynch, it's in the report that's... No, so your, your follow-up is, tell us in your own words, what was the substantial evidence you yeah. found on that? And what do you guys you know, think? Will that, he tell in his own words, or will he, will he say, absolutely. look, as it says on page 88, this is what I found? No, absolutely. He'll tell it in his own He'll words. He'll tell us it, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. He's not 
He's not. He's not squirrely. He's not resentful. I've seen him testify, right. and it's not, it hasn't been the same kind of drama. But he's unfailingly polite, you might try to say, or responsive. He'll he'll try maybe to put it in his own. That's already a big thing yeah. if he puts it in his own words, don't you think? Absolutely. And and I think yeah. that's a a major at least goal in in a process of at least giving a reset to this, so that you know if you have you know 0.01 percent of Americans who haven't really read the report. If you get Mueller to talk about, in his own words, some of the most serious parts and use the setup as the conclusions that he reported on, it gives him that breathing room. So it's not you're asking Mueller to go astray. You're focusing. This is your report. Now I want you to tell me in your own words. And, you know, when you're you know, you have a trial, you have juries that, you know, have limited attention span. If you can get them to focus on the snapshot of the key part of what you want to focus on and then have the witness telling his own words, that's going to be able to bring some color to life to this. Well, that's true. Although, of course, as Andy says, it's kind of eight counts. But, um, Ron, you've been up there. What do you think the, the, the R's are going to do? Will they really just scream and harangue and, dis, and distract? I mean, will, are they not, will they have no concern about how it looks to the American people, this is, that this be a moment of kind of dignity and drama? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yikes. That, was, that wasn't a rhetorical question. Actually. No, but it was. Uh, look, <clears throat> look, I mean, uh, you know, Matt pointed this out. The Republicans have two ways to win, right? One is that Mueller gives answers that are helpful to them. I think he will give more answers that are helpful to them than people believe. And two, they run out the clock. And, uh, you know, and so you know, what they're going to do is talk and harangue and strum and drang and bring up you know, the dossier and the conspiracy and page, and, and page the whole thing. Right? They're just going to try to basically chew up as much time as they can throw as much chaff in the air as they can, make it as confusing as possible. So at the end, what people say is like a bunch of people yelling, talking about a bunch of stuff I didn't really understand. I don't know, you know, click, two hours. And so, you know, they have both uh, their elaborately spun crazy conspiracy theories and a ticking clock as their allies in this process. And I think they will use both to try to minimize whatever clarity the Democrats could uh, no. Come out of this. The poor Dems only have the truth, which is uh, which doesn't seem to be that strong an ally. Yeah, it's yeah. A... Um, Matt. You, so you're you're up there, uh, Matt. It sounds like. Do you actually have a sense? What's the prep process like? Are is there are the Dems being you know disciplined? Are they you know are the actual members? Doing their homework. What, what, what's your best guess about? It? That's a not an, again not a rhetorical question. Even, um, you know, how, how's it how's it working? You think over the next few days? Um, it, you know, it's difficult. So the Judiciary Committee, in particular, probably only about half the members on that committee are going to get to get to ask questions in open setting. It, do you know how it works by that? Judiciary in the morning. Judiciary and at nine. In the judiciary at nine. In t- Intel at noon. Oh, Intel. Um, okay. yeah. Uh, but because it's two hours, I think there are 45 members of that committee. There aren't enough time for all of the members to ask questions for five minutes. I assume that they will let the most senior members ask questions first. And if you watch, have watched most of the, these hearings in judiciary, you know that's a bad idea because mm. it's actually the more junior members mm. who have been better questioners and been able to get you know better answers out of the witnesses. Like for example, when they've had um, uh, Whitt- and, you know, Whitt- Matt Whitaker up, it was the junior members that actually drew some blood. Uh, I would hope what they'll do is is be very smart and and disciplined about number one ask questions don't give speeches when you give a speech you're wasting your five minutes and not getting anything useful out of the witness number two do some coordination among members so you don't all ask about the same area, which happens all the time, even though it shouldn't. I no, mean, surely they're trying to do uh, that the, much, the, no? The staff tries very much. The committee staff tries very hard to do that. The personal staff of the members try. But some of these members who've been there a long time have their, very, you know, have their own opinions about uh, the wisdom of their strategies. Um, I, I would say number three, when you start a line of questioning, know where you're trying to go before you get there. You see all the time these more members will, you know, Go barging, you know, down a line of questioning. Get to the end. Find out they went down a blind alley and say, "Oh, my time is up." Um, and, and be very disciplined. Don't ask a bunch of open-ended questions. Right. Ask yes/no questions. Everyone agree with um, that? It's got to be leading and and boom, boom. Because, you know, because Tim made the other point. It's, it's got to tell be, us in your own words. In my view, it's got to be leading to a point. But you want him to give life to the most serious parts that he found. Because it's one thing when a member says something, but to actually have Mueller, a key witness, be able to say, 
X, Y, and Z. This is what I found about the president trying to fire right. the special. How about just that much coordination? Do you think that there's some there's now an agreement about what are the four or five most important things? I would I would I, I would hope so because you've got limited time. So you have to make a decision. When I was on the Hill and we were doing hearings on oversight, we'd have to make a decision in terms of, you know, you've got five minutes, X amount of time, you know. We've got to focus on, you know, in this case, the four most serious aspects of the obstruction of justice charge, because we've only got two hours. We don't have all day. So you've got to make those sorts of decisions to really focus people on this, especially if you want your questions to be effective. You're going to have to cut through the fat with a report that's, you know, hundreds of pages. If you're focusing on obstruction of justice, what are the most serious? Not all 10. What are the four four, ones that he found? probable cause and substantial evidence of obstruction. Yeah, Ron, you had a side. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd be a little more towards yes, no questions. I just think Mueller, while he is he's quite articulate and, as you say, unfailingly polite, I've also watched him testify he can be uh, not verbose, but like a little bureaucratic. A little bureaucratic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, five minutes, if you're going to spend of the five minutes, a minute and a half asking questions cumulatively, that means he's going to talk for three and a half minutes. If you let him spend a minute and a half of that time explaining, I was appointed under this regulation and under the scope of the regulation, <laughs> right. I had the authority to look into this and not that. And blah, 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 right. blah. Yeah. Like, you know, you're just not going to get a lot out of it. And so while I, I agree with Tim that like having these things come through his voice would be ideal. Yeah, because they're looking for the TV moment, right? (laughs) Right. It's not necessarily what he says. In some ways, it's like a lot of yes, no, and and, and just trying to get some things out. I'd also just say, in a weird way, these questions, particularly in the House, questioning goes awry through um, overly ambitious efforts to question about too much stuff and too much. And so uh, if I was sitting with one of these members, I'd say pick one thing, just one thing and spend your five minutes nailing that one thing down. And can the chairs, I mean, that seems so obvious. Are, are the chairs in a position to actually enforce that much? No. Nothing. It's no, a it's bad just It's a they're in a position to talk and cajole yeah. and coax and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, get some progress. I think you'll see, in some ways, better results in the Intelligence Committee probably than in the Judiciary Committee because I think, uh, you know, the members there are maybe a little better questioners and I think a little more... Uh, focused on, you know, the the Russia side of this in a way that's, uh, you know, going to be a little more, uh, I think, engaging to the public. Let me move exactly to that and ask you, Andy, because that's that's become, you know, a, the, the sort of forgotten huge half of the uh, report that, again, if you read it carefully, describes some eyebrow-raising worrisome misbehavior, not just looking retrospectively, but looking forward. And uh, if people really, you know, I think that the short answer that people have given to that, oh, that's, there's nothing there. That's obviously not true. Do you spend some of your precious time trying to establish that at the cost of not fully plumbing the depths of the uh, second half of the Mueller report? Well, I mean, I, and we'll see how much of this coordination actually takes place. But I think um, Ron's right that, you know, the, the natural split there is to have the Intel Committee focus on that. It's also the part of the report that I think Mueller feels most strongly about. It's what he led his own uh, his own public statement with. Uh, well, yeah, nine that's right. He statement. wanted to remind everybody about that. Yeah, That's right. So he clearly feels like that's been... Um, you know, pushed aside and the focus on the obstruction issues. It's a way to kind of provoke him, get him engaged. It is an area that he'll probably be more likely to kind of wax poetic on in a way that'll be effective, I think, for the hearing. So, yeah, I think you have to, if certainly on the intel side, you have to start with that, right? That is their mission. That's what they're there to find out about. And I think it's uh, fertile ground uh, to bring Mueller into. Any chances for anyone, any chance that he permits us or, and expresses any daylight between him and Barr. No. We got. We have a. Okay. I, I think it's possible. Uh, I I, th- I think he'll try not to. But I think you know if you ask him questions, if you ask him you know yes no questions about some of the <clears> things <throat> that Barr said, uh, and say is that an accurate description of your work, you might find a little daylight because I think there are times you, that Barr you, you might was find a little bit there, but he'll do but everything he'll, you, possible to right. avoid the po- the personal confrontation. I, I agree I with agree. that. I mean, yeah. we think that, but look on the, on the most important work of his career, Barr really did him a disservice. Um, but 
I mean, Mueller is way too unflappable. Yeah. Unflappable is not the word, but yeah. Unfailingly yeah. polite, maybe to use your term or, from before. Or soldier-like or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And he had the opportunity to do that from behind the podium at Justice. He didn't. Um, yes. So I, I, it would be a surprise to me. Um, by the way, I assume nobody is working. At, well, I want to focus a little bit more on Barr. You've had efforts now, overtures, to try to keep the deputies from uh, testifying after. Is he, all indications before were that's, that's Bob's decision, it's hands off. Is he a factor in any way on uh, the 17th or just waiting his turn to come in and, and do whatever counts for him as cleanup work, would you say? For who to come in? Bar, the attorney general. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know if he's going to come before this committee. You know, he, mm. he was subpoenaed to come before this committee yeah. and defied the subpoena because he didn't want to take questions from staff. Um, mm. I, and, you know, I actually don't think that was a terribly bad outcome for the Democrats for him not to be there. He's the best pr witness the president has because he's the person who, you know, who is the attorney general as at the Justice Department, was Mueller's supervisor. And, and really has an amazing ability to make extreme statements. Sound, just, yeah. sound reasonable. Eye to eye and sound, look reasonable, sound, right? Sound reasonable. So, yeah. He's got to go before that committee sometime this year. It's a regular, you know, oversight hearing that every attorney general has to do. So he will, um, I assume, in the fall. Um, but you know, I think it's a real uh, to Ron's point. I meant I think more. It, I, I meant more, by the way, in any way to try to manipulate, oh. limit, curb the wings of any of the testimony that's well, coming. Well, you've already seen him yeah. trying to block the staff from right. coming in. He's trying to block two of, <clears throat> two of Mueller's deputies from coming in. He can't really do that if they don't want to to listen to him. They, they, they can't try, at all do that, right? Yeah, they can. But you know. Look, they can intimidate that there might be bar referrals. They tried to they tried to block they tried to intimidate Sally Yates from from coming in to testify uh -huh. um, uh, when she came uh, early in the administration, and she blew them off. She wasn't willing to do it, and we'll see whether Jim Quarles and uh, and Zebley care about. Uh, Why is it any those, of those two, by the way? Uh, How have we chosen who the deputies are? I, I, I don't know why no. the House chose that. I suspect because they were uh, the two most senior people, or the two people who had visibility into everything by virtue. Zebley kind of as the chief of staff and Quarles as, as maybe see. the most senior person. But uh, Let's focus really on them for a little bit more, off, again, from the standpoint of Democratic strategy. They, they will presumably be much more candid. It might even be, in fact, that they're willing to express daylight. On the other hand... They're behind the scenes. And your overall playbook for Wednesday, and, and both Matt and Ron have, have suggested that the playbook has a lot of blank pages in it, but in your overall playbook, what, what are you doing with and what are you reserving for the deputies? Any thoughts? I think you're for the deputies reserving, you know, what key additional information, you know, what, you know, I, I, I think the deputies will probably be a little bit more um, forthcoming about next steps, um, particularly if you're going to be looking at questioning behind closed doors. Folks tend to be a little bit more um, open when the cameras are not uh, rolling. Um, so I think they've got to use the deputies as an opportunity to, to build um, next steps in a way that's going to be much more difficult with um, Mueller and the cameras rolling. I think that's where the deputies are going to be key. I also think the interesting question that you're not going to get out of Mueller is who pressured and how much pressure was put on Mueller and his team to wrap this investigation up, in my view, way prematurely. Very quickly. And, 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 and maybe the deputies cough that up. I mean, look, of all my criticisms of Mueller, my biggest one is he never questioned Trump. Right. I think it's an yeah. inexcusable legal failure, prosecutorial failure, and historical failure. And his story in the report is, hey, I first asked him on December 8th, uh, to question, and, and, and it, they said no, and it was going to take a lot of time to litigate this out, and so I gave up. And I had a lot of information elsewhere. And like, For a prosecutor, by the way, to, uh, to amateur, so, so, stunning. So, like, so first what? of all, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know. And so, one more thing. We thought we already had enough evidence. We thought we already had enough which evidence. Is, which is well, evidence that has to be of, of intent, right? What else could he mean he has enough evidence? Right. Go and ahead. So, Sorry. So, so look. So, one, why did you wait all the way till December 8th? Right. Like, like, did you just get schnookered by Rudy Giuliani <laughs> constantly promising you <laughs> that this was going to happen? Like, I want to know what the deputies have to say about that. Was there a discussion in the office about putting the question to Trump sooner, making 
asking him say yes or no sooner. Why did they decide they couldn't win this litigation or that they didn't have time to bring this litigation? And that, like, like, we wouldn't have U.S. v. Nixon if the Watergate prosecutor had taken over. Fighting over this tapes take a long time. Who knows? Maybe we'll win in court. Maybe we'll lose. Why should we bother this litigation? Like, fortunately, that was not the decision made 30 years ago. I think the Mueller team needs to be pressed hard on this. And this sense that's in the report everywhere of a ticking clock, time was running out, it had taken too long, we needed to have this answer. Where did that come from? And and was that externally applied? You know, in the Matt Whitaker DOJ era, there was a lot of talk about this, uh, you know, and and Barr shows up and all of a sudden it's done and it's over. Like, I want to know how all that went down. And I think the deputies are going to be the place where you might well get some traction on that. Yeah, look, a a fantastic point. They compare, say, Whitewater, which was, what, nine years? Uh, to, no, maybe, and, and, much le- and much less complicated. This is actually, for what it's worth, the genesis of the Talking Feds podcast, because I, it, people would make these blithe explanations, and the thing that seemed so clear to me is this must have been hotly debated, and it's that hot debate that, I, you know, where was Weissman on this? Mm-hmm. Where were, it, it does seem such an obvious uh, move, and I do think it will be the sort of first account of, of uh, criticism against him in, uh, in history. It, it really gives the possibility that we, we may never know some very um, uh, important things. Um, on the logistics, by the way, so the deputies are going to be at the end of the day in theory. No one's supposed to know, but in practice we just expect that their content will will leak. No, no uh, party has a premium on leaking. Is that what? How's that going to work, Matt? I don't know. I don't know whether. I mean, there are a couple ways they can do it. One, they can have a, a non-transcribed interview where they just talk to the deputies and then leak out whatever they want to. The other way they can do it is is how they've done interviews with, say, Annie Donaldson uh, and Hope Hicks, where they do the interview behind closed doors, they transcribe it, and then make that transcript public uh, the the day after, or a couple days after. I'm not sure. I see the point of that. You know the the purpose of the of, of congressional investigations, I think typically they have two purposes. One is fact finding, and two is public illumination. Uh, the deputies aren't there for public illumination because they're behind closed right. doors. They're there to Ron's point for fact finding, uh, and hopefully to give the committee some new avenues to to look at that they didn't run down. So, uh, I, I think whether they really set to the public or not, I, I'm not sure how much difference it really makes. Um, Andy, you're, you've probably, I, 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 I'm looking at people who I know have testified before, but you've, you've probably been on the hot seat the most. What's it feel like, kind of, for, what's it going to feel like for him on, on the, on, will, will he be, you know, will it be sweating intense? Will it feel like the six hours passes in ten minutes? Uh, do, you, do you constantly rethink, I should have said that last answer, uh, you know, a little bit this way? Uh, you know, how, yeah. how's that? He's a yeah. human being, after all. He might even have to go to the bathroom during the day. Who knows? It's going to be terrible in every way that you can think For of. Terrible. It's a, it's a yeah. miserable, miserable root canal of a day. It's Just, absolutely awful. Uh, you spend an enormous amount of time preparing, and, and Mueller certainly does. We've yeah. all had that experience Legendary. with him. Right. We, the, they used to line the hallway leading up to his office with briefing teams. He'd have these thousand-page binders all over the place. It was and insane. And by the way, people—it's really true. People would go in, and he'd, he'd already have it down to detail. Yeah. His okay. command of the facts when I worked with him was extraordinary. Unparalleled. Unparalleled. Right? And he would come after you um, in a very kind of you know cross-examination style. It's been well documented. Um, it's going to be very tough for him. He hasn't done this in quite a while. He didn't like it when he used to do it. Um, he did it less and less frequently as he was director. Um, he began to rely more heavily on his deputies and others to go in and um, and and take these uh, swings for him. Um, he can't get out of this one, obviously. Uh, it's physically draining. You start immediately right. questioning. Right, and by the way, he's a little bit older, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He's, uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. He'll be coming after me now. It's <laughs> uh, not good. <clears throat> he, um, you know, you immediately start calculating your question and the answer like as they're speaking you're constantly trying to figure out where you are in the facts that you know what you can reveal what you should reveal you're trying to be as accurate and truthful as you possibly can but you're trying not to step on things like classification and sensitive information talking about ongoing cases things like that he's got a basically a 400 page report to memorize and be able to kind of instantly index and provide facts from so it's a it's a tall order and um, there's no kind of oh, I did that well 
well. It's just like, okay, I got by that one. It's the, the uh, you, you basically yeah. want to live. Yeah. You want to right. get out alive. You know yeah. that you're not going to answer every question as well as you'd like to. The period after the testimony is almost as excruciating because you spend a lot of time thinking, oh, my God, I shouldn't have said that or I should have said this differently. What do you or, think? Will, will they give them follow-up written questions? Will they give them all follow-up written questions? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, you know, I could see on the one hand a value, but I think the main goal of getting him, you know, up before the cameras, I think. Yeah, yeah Matt, you, say, you, you think this is it? This is the last word from Mueller? Probably. Yeah. 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 I, I think yeah. it's possible the deputies will get those sort of follow-up questions because as, as uh, the others have said, that's your chance here to go beyond the report. Um, as a former deputy, I can tell you, always call the deputies up because they know a lot, they've been around forever, and they're more likely to say more than what they should, because I am a <laughs> yeah. perfect example of that. <laughs> who, will be, who, by the way, will be there other than his deputies from staff? Who will be there from, say, the department, from Barr's staff, from Rosen's staff? Yeah, that's a really good question. Any ideas? Who, who would tend it, Ron, who would, as protocol would have it, who would, because that's going to be, that'll affect the atmosphere a little, no? Yeah, I presume that they will push hard to have someone from legislative affairs in the room, at least, if not someone directly from the DAG's office. But I, but I also think, look, what we know about this committee is the Republicans' members of this committee are members of the Trump administration. And, you know, they will make, uh, you know, snake eyes at these people when they testify and make it clear that anything they say uh, you know, is going to get reported back. This is this game is not on the level in any way, shape, or form. Right. This is you know one side holding a hearing, the other side uh, engaged in a defense campaign for the president, and and so it doesn't really matter who Donald Trump has in the room because he has and without rules. Where well, without rules. rules? Yeah. Um, uh, okay, but but um, you know, in the actual event, this is a little in, inside baseball, but you guys have such great knowledge. Who among the Republicans do you think is actually effective at this game? And who, for in both committees, are the Democrats' best questioners, cleanest, most able to answer, you know, pose follow-up questions? Who do you want in sort of, you know, staying with baseball in the third and fourth positions, as it were? Matt, do you have a sense of that? Um, uh, on the Democratic side, uh, among both committees, Adam Schiff is, I think, heads above right. any of the, the questioners. Uh, on the Judiciary Committee, you know, David Cicilline is pretty good. Veronica Escobar, who's a freshman, probably won't even get to ask a question, is very good and has done right. very well. Um, uh, those are some of the tops. Hmm. And what about— I would, you know, I would add, I yeah. think uh, Hakeem Jeffries yeah. uh, is, pretty, is pretty strong. Um, on on Hipsy, uh, Jim Himes, former prosecutor. Hipsy is uh, oh, intelligence, intelligence committee. committee. Uh-huh. Um, and I think um, Eric Swalwell was a former prosecutor. If you get him to focus, <laughs> he can be you yeah. know, pretty effective. So, you know, I think folks who have both a law enforcement or prosecutorial background, you know, are some Val Demings is someone else. She was a former chief of police. Um, I've been impressed with, you know, her questions. Right. She's very From passionate. Down in Florida. Down yeah. in Florida. Yeah. Um, is there anyone on the Republican side who will even try to ask him questions, either, easy, you know, how, however they'll do it? Or will it simply be five minute harangues? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield my time. Yeah, what, I, what I'd say is, um, as low as my expectations are for the Democrats, I think it's the most likely dramatic moment in this hearing comes from some Republican overreaching. That is, the thing I wonder about Mueller is, I, I absolutely respect and defer to Andy's view that he won't lose his cool, but I, but I do think he is a loyal leader of his team. And I think if someone sits there and starts with the 12 angry Democrats and your political hacks and so on and so forth, I think it's his obligation, and I hope he would, stand up and defend his team and defend their work and defend their fairness and call out what the Republicans are doing to discourage people from doing the kind of principled public service that Mueller's team did. I say this to someone, again, who's not a huge fan of their product, but I hugely respect their service and their willingness to do it. And, uh, you know, I think if you ask me to predict what would be the dramatic moment, that well might be the dramatic yeah. moment if he finally stands up and says, hey, like, just enough of this. And yeah. what about that, Andy? We've you been know, so thirsty about this for three years. Every chance for mm-hmm. people to stand up, it hasn't yep. happened. And and it's not, it is, ap- I mean, there are two kinds of duties here, right? He, mm-hmm. There's the, the 
duty in the chain of command, but then he certainly takes very seriously the the sort of you know duty or responsibility to the team and these are all handpicked by him they worked yep. for two or three yep. years they gave up their lives they did a great you know product with with the flaws that ron's identified what There's about no it? doubt in my mind he'll defend those folks um i think he tried to do that at the end of his uh of his uh public statement a few weeks ago um, I, I just think, Ron, what he'll do is he'll dismiss those first two, three waves of criticism. He won't get into like a heated, angry exchange. He'll just absolutely deny that his folks were selected because of their political background or deny that he stacked his team with a bunch of angry Democrats. Um, he will stand up and defend that team. There's no doubt in my mind he will. I think he'll just do it in that kind of straight ahead, dispassionate kind of the facts only uh, delivery that he's got. Yeah. What you Although, won't get are sweeping you know, grand but statements, that but can be that could be very effective. If it's actually in response to a screed, that could be, in fact, a very uh, dramatic kind of 15 uh, seconds. He could sort of you know, vaporize somebody with his there's cool blue-eyed stare. There's that infamous exchange between he and Gomert. This right. played a that, thousand times. Yeah, that, I think yeah. that's kind of what you can expect to see. No, but I was going to say, I do think it's important how he stands up, you know, particularly if, when you start getting the 12 angry Democrats. Because I think what was very powerful, Andy, when you testified before the committee, when the Republicans tried to paint this misinformation that Jim Comey was unpopular in the FBI and everyone uh, wanted to get rid of him. And you stood up, and it was very clear that that was bogus, that was a lie. And I think that's important, I feel, for Mueller at this point in time to be able to, on that you know, yeah. say, you know, when the 12 angry Democrats are like, no, these are, you yeah. know, folks who are doing their job and following the facts. And, you know, he knows that because it was probably the first thing he said to me when I saw him in the days following that testimony, which was essentially the first meeting between the special counsel team, which at that time was no more than the director, Jim Quarles and Aaron Zebley. They came over to start to get briefed on all the work that we had done to kind of lead up to that point. Um, and that testimony was very meaningful to him. I expect he will deliver that same sort of uh, defense. He just doesn't tend to do it in a very dramatic way. Um, although there's a kind of anti-drama drama, I think, to, you know, sort of Jimmy Stewart, whatever kind of way that he that he's very dramatic because the people around him, when they're histrionic, his his, uh, you know, cool ways, I think. Come I think I'm going to go Clint Eastwood. Yeah, OK. Rather gonna, than Jimmy well, I actually, you know, this guy, I've, I've, yeah, I think there's some Clint Eastwood, but also some Henry Fonda. This this guy's the whole deal. OK. Um, Look, normally, let's say that, um, you know, Tim is right. Normally, one of the things you'd be trying to do is at least set the table for the week, month, two months that comes after. So if they were thinking in terms of reset and having, you know, more more time to to go at this in, in an investigative way, will any of the questions, does it behoove them to try to identify specific areas that then give them a concrete agenda for a week from now, you know, be it Hope Hicks. I mean, there's, they'll still be left with the problem, even on a very good day of, that they've had for the last 13 weeks of not having a live witness in front of the cameras. Yeah, but I, again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think this is their most important objective at the hearing, which is to explain what Mueller didn't finish, to explain what leaves, what questions are still unanswered, to explain what corners he didn't touch. I think particularly around WikiLeaks and Stone and Trump Jr. and whatever kind of coordination went on there, but other areas too. I think they have to explain to people why this continues after Mueller's testimony. And I think that's about, uh, you know, what, 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 what are the still unanswered questions? I think that's the most important table setting thing they need to do, because I'll tell you what's gonna happen. Um, you know, to go back to something you mentioned before, if this is a baseball game, the designated hitter here is uh, Bill Barr. And what I can promise you will happen is at the end of the day, he will do a press conference and he will stand there in, in the Department of Justice and announce that basically the hearing proved that there are no crimes committed, that this is all over, that the committee's gotten what they want, now it's time to move on. I mean, he will be the, the, the final And he'll do it before here. the 6 o'clock news? And he'll, he'll do it before <laughs> yeah. the 6 o'clock news, if 6 o'clock news is still a thing in this country. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he, he will try to wrap this up and put a bow on it and say, over, finished, done, thank you very much. And the Democrats have to 
get ahead of that and get in front of that because that's the final play here. Wow. Okay. I, I was going to ask, I mean, do you think they have in mind, let me just add, do you think they have in mind what happens a week hence, you know, two weeks hence, if everything goes well, Matt, do you, you know, is, is there an actual, does Schiff have a sense of, okay, I'm going to be going with Lewandowski or, I mean, you know, is there, is it just like, we'll figure it out then, we just have to have to have a good day Wednesday and we'll figure it out later? Well, they should have a plan, but look. They're the Democrats the, and the look, committees, it's been, right? It's been, as I said, 12 weeks since the report right. was released. By next week, it'll be 13 weeks since the report is released. They have authorized and sent a bunch of subpoenas to a bunch of witnesses. Do you know how many times they've gone to court to enforce one of those subpoenas in the 12 weeks? No, uh, zero, zero. Yeah. zero. The Ways and Means Committee has for, for tax returns, and they've gone belatedly, uh, even there. belatedly. But they've not gone to to, to court to infor- to get Don McGahn or any other witnesses they say they really want. So, uh, I am a little unclear what their long term strategy is. I think they really wanted to get Mueller, and they're going to finally get Mueller, although under very restricted terms. Um, it doesn't seem like they're getting McGahn anytime soon. It doesn't seem like they're getting any of the other witnesses they want anytime soon. So I think they're floundering a little bit, and part of it is they can't figure out what to do, and part of it there is a real disagreement, I think, inside the House Democratic Caucus about how hard they ought to push. um, If they put, you know, and whether they push themselves into an impeachment battle that they, for the most part, don't want to have. Okay, Um, I mean the the sort of sixty-four thousand dollar question, not just of this panel, but the whole week, and let's let's you know, have everyone weigh in with, with these sorts of possibly glum thoughts, or maybe not. You know, what, what is the actual impact of what we see now in sort of political maneuvering and tactics and who's winning on, in fact, the health, vitality, and public confidence of the democratic institutions whose basic strength we never took as uh, as being you know in on the as being up for grabs before, so you know maybe it depends on on the on the 2020 election, but you know we have this huge event that's happened and we've all uh, that sort of underlying everything people have said is the prospect that the American people won't even know what happened about stuff and that they'll in a sense get away with you know crimes. Uh, and abhorrent behavior. What, you know, what is your what? What's your thoughts about how the health of democratic institutions like the FBI appear uh, in a post-Trump world, assuming he leaves in an orderly transition sometime? Um, Matt, let me so, let, let me ask uh, to sort of yeah. You know, let me. Um, so I probably, like a lot of us, have spent a lot of time worrying since Trump became president about his effect on the Justice Department and right. his effect on how the public perceives the Justice Department as an independent investigator and arbiter of facts. And uh, after spending a long time worrying about that, the thing I'm worried about today is not so much w- whether people perceive the Justice Department being independent or whether it actually is independent anymore. Having watched how Barr has behaved I mean, as attorney general, I have real concerns not just about his counter-investigation into the origins or oranges of the investigation, but I have a real concern about what next year and an election year looks like and whether the president is able to, to you know, have another locker-up campaign and is able to push the Justice Department with a willing attorney general into investigating the Democratic nominee for president. You've already seen them pushing around the edges with Joe Biden with some bogus trumped-up allegations about him. But it won't be just by yeah, I mean, in a way else. that it actually so, changes the national consensus it, it, that, going forward. That, that actually yeah. is. And so I have a, a, a real worry that Trump, Trump, after a lot of pushing on the door at DOJ, finally has gotten what he wanted with Bill Barr and has gotten it with an attorney general who will do it in a way that at times will even appear defensible because of the way he's able to present things publicly. And if, if he's able, if, if I'm right and he has accomplished that, who knows if the Justice Department will ever go back. It may go back under Democratic presidents, but not Republican ones. We may see this you know, asymmetry between the two parties that we've seen in, in other areas spill over to the independent enforcement of law. Tim? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is in terms of our, you know, our institutions. Um, you know, you just saw recently where Barr, you know, tried to re- remove the whole team for the citizenship question. And you had a judge fight back and say, um, you've got to, you know, come back with something better. 
um, because this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, I think that it's going to be real key in terms of, you know, if, you know, Trump is reelected, a continued erosion. And you're seeing it right now. Can we put a stop on that? And can Democrats in the interim make sure that they're being more aggressive in protecting these institutions and shining a, a light on the damage that's being done? Because that's going to be, you know, the real challenge here. I think part of what Democrats, House Judiciary, have struggled with is that they're in a different world. Everyone expected, you know, in some ways, Trump to play by certain rules because that's the way most presidents have. You know, you send people up to testify. You in the end produce documents. I mean, when I was on oversight in the minority with the Obama administration, I mean— you know, it was a, you know, as much frustration as the Obama administration got, and they fought on some points. In the end, they turned over materials. The Democrats, you know, that are in control of Congress now haven't fully adjusted to a world where you have a president that functions more like a mob boss who has every flunky around him that was willing to do whatever it takes to shut things down and will say no. And the struggle for Democrats, what do we do? And so it's, it's adjusting to a new world. And, you know, that's what I think is the challenge that we're seeing now. Ron? Yeah, I mean, um, I agree with what's been said. I do think that kind of our Demo- a lot of our democratic norms are on the ballot in 2020, and we're going to make a real fundamental decision as a country. Uh, if Trump gets four more years and continues to go down the path he is, ideas like an independent Justice Department or federal law enforcement agency that's insulated from politics – uh, will be eroded, I think, beyond comprehension and beyond measure. Uh, it's crazy to me that uh, Attorney General Sessions is the good old days. And um, uh, I mean, truly crazy. And um, uh, and so, you know, f- four more years of this, uh, six, five more years of this, it's, it's hard to imagine. But it's also on the ballot in the second way, which is even if the Democrats win, the question will be, what the Democrats do in return. Yes. Will they restore these norms or practice Trumpism from the left? And, you know, I think those, you know, it's, those are hard and difficult questions. And I think, uh, you know, we, a lot of what we believe to have been fixed, or a lot of what I believed over the course of my 25 years in, in politics and policy, I believe to be kind of fixed uh, beacons of how the system works and how the Justice Department works have been torn apart the past three years. And it's just not clear what puts that back together or whether or not it gets put back together or not. Yeah, I feel as strongly as uh, the rest of the panelists do about uh, the damage that's been done to the system, to the to DOJ, and certainly to the FBI. It's just um, it's extraordinary, and it and it uh, all indications are worse for the future. One way that we can, you know, somebody's got to stand up and defend these organizations, these institutions. One way that can be done is by communicating what is in that report, communicating it more effectively than Mueller did. We still, you know, we're in a country right now where uh, informed, plugged in, engaged political people are going to town halls of their representatives and walking out saying, I didn't know that the report said anything bad about the president. So somehow we've got to rectify the fact that we're sitting on this massive evidence. It's not the greatest report in the world. There are all kinds of ways that I think it could have been better as well, but let's at least use what we have. And that's what the Democrats should be trying to accomplish next week. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say you have to hope and believe that if uh, the American people really understood the kinds of stakes that these last four answers um, present, that the solid majority of them would see this as, as important and want to push back. And among the more vexing aspects of these last few years is not, not, not simply that he's gotten away with it, but the apparent uh, indifference or even ignorance that's right. about all that's happening. Um, okay, so on that cheery note, <laughs> I want to thank very much. It's been a great discussion, really. So, Matt, Tim, Ron, and Andy, thank you so much. So, a simple question, maybe. Uh, will we ever find out what happened to the counterintelligence investigation? You might not. You might not. Most counterintelligence investigations don't uh, come, you know, get aired out kind of in the light of day. Um, I, of course, don't know what's happening with that now. 
Um, I would expect that lingering counterintelligence concerns are still being followed up by the FBI, which was the case when I was there, even during dependency of the special counsel team. Um, but by definition, those uh, those cases are, are conducted in a classified um, context that's designed to protect sources and methods and things like that. One more? Thanks, everyone. That was a fascinating talk. Um, does anyone think that there is value in a line of questioning related to the OLC memo up to and including, but for it and your fundamental fairness concerns, would you have charged the president? Um, that seems like, to continue the analogy, and either a Casey at the bat or a natural moment, um, is that too big a risk to take? I don't think it's a huge risk, but I th and I think it would be the be maybe the single best answer that could happen. I just don't see it happening. It's not going to answer it. I don't think. I don't think he'll answer it. But I, you know, right? I, it's 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 a thirty-second uh, time. He'll say we didn't even get to that question. We didn't even consider that question because of the memo. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to speculate about it here. Although, Something when like Matt that said, I mean, one of the reasons when you read carefully that I think he did conclude, it just doesn't seem like what prosecutors do. That they actually came and oh yeah, we're about to cross the finish line, but let's not even think about it anymore because <laughs> right. we have this memo. I, I think it's quite likely they went through the whole analysis. That's what they do. And then the memo, memo, you know, was, was overlain. Which, and that'd be great to know if it were the facts, but again, I don't think we'll know. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to, uh, to Talking Fed's uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Talking Feds Pod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Thank you for tuning in and don't, well, maybe worry, but, uh, <laughs> but as long as you need answers, the Feds at least will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum, Michelle Beaulieu, and Courtney Columbus. Thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.